pray for our time together in this passage of Scripture, and I know that uh, you will be blessed. So let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, there is so much that we can talk about as a church that we are doing and that we want to do. But above everything, Lord, we pray that all that we do will be for the glory of your name. That above everything, that you would get the glory, that you would get the credit, that in this church, Jesus will be what will be made much of. That Jesus' name and his renown and his glory is what will be preeminent in our church. And so, Father, toward that end, we pray that you would be treasured. That Christ would be treasured in our hearts and in our church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to discern your word today. Help us to not only to understand, but also to apply And help us, Lord, to gain all of these great and valuable lessons from this mighty passage of Scripture. We pray your blessing on our time and we ask for your help. Lord, we can do nothing apart from you. As John the Baptist prayed, there's nothing that we can do apart from you unless it's given to us from you, from heaven. And so, Father, today we express our absolute dependence upon you our absolute dependence upon the Spirit of God because we can have lights and we can have microphones and we can have walls and we can have a building and we can have a website and we can have guitars and technology. But if we don't have your Spirit, Lord, then we will not be experiencing your blessing and your favor. And so, Lord, we want the power of your Spirit to work in our church, work in our lives. Transform us and change us, even as we are in this new covenant, to be conformed more and more into the mind of Christ in Scripture. And so we pray, open up our understanding as you did with the disciples there on the road to Emmaus. You opened up their understanding so that they could understand your word. And so we ask, please, Open up our minds. Teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're coming very quickly now to the end of this letter. And as you can see, I really am running out of text. And that's okay. Because I'm excited for what follows. If any of you are wondering, where are we going after 2 Corinthians? Um, In all sincerity, I don't know. But I have a lot of ideas. Eventually, my desire is to make our way to the book of Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews. Before that, however, I have, uh, I've decided to do a, a whole series of different sermons on different topics, because I think there are topics that need to be addressed in our church. And so I'm going to spend some time talking about practical theology, looking at practical areas of our lives that need to be, that we need instruction on, that we need to, that we need to study from a, a, a very expository perspective. And so we'll look at all the different things having to do with uh, practical theology, marriage, family, finances. I don't know if we'll cover all of the things dealing with practical theology, but just some practical things that I think will be very good for us. I do also want to spend some time in the Psalms. And so be expecting that. And above everything, I would just say, please pray for me that God would lead me, would lead Chris and I to the right topics to preach on, okay? But this uh, topic in front of us today 
is also very, very, very important for us because here the Apostle Paul is confronting sin in the power of Christ. That would kind of be my title today. Confronting sin in the power of Christ. And in order to do that, he does two things. Number one, he goes through the logistics of church discipline, we could say, by confronting sin with caution. And then, aside from that, he's also going to confront sin with Christ. And we'll look at the doctrine of union with Christ. But the very first thing I want to point out to you is this issue here. Verse 1 says, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. And so at first, he sets the context of this confrontation with the issue of his third visit. You remember now, Paul has visited the church now on two occasions, and now he's warning them that before he comes, he wants them, if you would, to clean up spiritual house. And so the first visit where he came, you remember 1 Corinthians, it was a glorious evangelistic endeavor. Paul came to Corinth, he preached Christ crucified, he solidified the church, he planted the church, he, 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 he planted a church that was rooted in the power of God and not in the wisdom of man. His second, his second visit, however, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there it was what scholars have called the painful visit. Because it was very painful both for Paul and for the church because there were sins that needed to be dealt with. And there were individuals and there was one in particular that was causing a lot of distress for Paul. He was undermining Paul's ministry. He was questioning Paul's authority. He was bringing division and, dis and, and, and disturbances to the church. And Paul had to deal with that painful, painful visit. But here he is saying, I am coming to you a third Time. Now, let me just make an observation. Time is of the essence here. And the passage of time is so critical for this church. And so I thought, it's also critical for the whole of Christian living. The passage of time, my dear friends, is a very precious commodity in the Christian life. Time itself. Time itself. Scripture teaches that in the Christian life, time is to be bought back. It's to be purchased. To use the biblical word, it is to be redeemed. You remember Paul, his words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk. And the word walk means how you live, how you conduct your life. He says, not as unwise, but wise. He says, making the most use of the time. The literal word there, exagorazo, this weird Greek word, literally means to redeem the time. I like that old King James vocabulary there. Redeem the time, because the days are evil. And boy, are the days evil today. Colossians chapter 4 says, Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Our time is important. And here's the thing. In Corinth, time is going to pass. Paul's question is, what are you going to do with the time that passes? So either the Corinthian church is going to take advantage of the time by repenting, renewing themselves, taking spiritual stock of where they are, or it will be yet another disappointment. 
It will be, as Paul says earlier in the letter, a time where he will be humiliated in front of them again. It will be a time of disappointment for them. But the Bible says, no, make the most use of your time. Let me give you a couple other reasons why we need to take time serious in the Christian life. Number one, because you spent enough time not doing the will of God. Your hourglass is almost done. And you've wasted enough grains of sand on futile, fleeting pleasures of sin. Uh, maybe nobody teaches this better than Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he instructs the church, he says, The time has already passed and is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying, you've lived like an unbeliever long enough. You've squandered enough time on sin, especially. You've squandered enough time on sinful things. And would you not agree with me that a lot of time can be wasted, not necessarily with sinful things. Sometimes you can waste time on leisurely things. There's nothing sinful about going golfing. There's nothing sinful about watching television. There's nothing sinful about engaging in your favorite hobby or your recreation. No, there's nothing sinful about that at all. But my dear friends, we are not just called to take stock of what is sinful, but we are also called to make the most of our time. See, it's not a minimalistic approach of time. It is a maximalistic approach of time. How are you maximizing your time in doing the will of God? Peter says, enough time. And I think, transfer this over to the Corinthian situation. Enough time has been spent pursuing sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable things. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a big waste of time to be living like that. And especially on this side of the cross, being redeemed, having your eyes open, being a born-again, blood-bought child of God. You have the right perspective. Now it's just simply time to awaken to who you are. There are no keys to the Christian life, but here's one. One key to the Christian life is that you awaken to who you are. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says this. He says, Knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now that is spoken to the church. That's not an evangelistic rally. That is not Paul witnessing to somebody. That is not, a, you know, that's not a gospel presentation to the lost. This is Paul speaking to a sleepy, slumbering, drowsy church. At least individuals within the church that might need this exhortation, this shot in the arm. Wake up! You're no longer to sleep. You're no longer to be unaware of your surroundings. Don't be walking around in a drowsy, slumbering, sleepy condition, spiritually speaking. Be awake. Be vigilant. Be sharp. Jonathan Edwards, 
again, is known to have lived his life, much of his life, in a perpetual state of fasting, where he would often, almost daily, go with a little bit of food. Maybe that's why he was so gaunt and pale in his pictures. But he said it kept his mind sharp. Right? You know that. When you go out to eat, like we're going to go out to eat after church, you go out and you eat more than you should have, how do you feel? You feel like taking a nap. That's how you feel, right? But if you went the rest of this night without eating, I'll tell you how you're going to feel. You're going to feel restless. You're going to feel like, I need to get something. I need to, don't eat the microphone, but you're going to get hungry. You're going to start looking around. You're going to start, your senses are going to start being heightened. In a sense, that is the way that we are to live our spiritual lives, with a heightened sense of our spiritual condition, awaken with much discernment. The passage of time will either be spent in spiritual lethargy or it will be spent with spiritual vigilance. It's up to you. It's up to us to decide how are we going to live this Christian life. And Paul is saying before he comes, he would desire for them to awaken a self-consciousness. I do a lot of ministry on college campus, UNT, you know that. Do you know how many people I talk to on a regular basis that are not even self-conscious? It seems like they're just walking around aimlessly, sleeping throughout their life, coasting. They're in cruise control. No idea of the consequences of their actions or of their, of their worldview. The Christian life is a life of sobriety. The Christian life is a life of vigilance, of watching, being watchful. Watch out. Be sober. There is no room for drunkenness. There is no room to be inebriated by alcohol or drugs or, 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 or addiction to medication, maybe. No. The Christian life is to be lived with absolute sobriety. There is enough deception in the world. It's enough trying to make your way through the fog of this culture. Don't add to the problem by inebriating yourself with some substance in the name of Christian liberty or in the name of, well, a physical problem. Well, if you do have a legitimate physical problem, I understand. But wouldn't you agree with me today? Strangely, I don't remember culture being like this, but strangely enough today, more than ever, it just seems like everything that happens in your life, doctors are telling you, go pop a pill. You get too angry? Here's a pill. You're a little hyper? Here's some pills. You get sad or depressed or melancholy? We got a pill for that. And the result is that the church is filled with people that are addicted to prescription, prescription drugs. That is a fact. And it's sad. Because you're not sober. You're not sober. And so with that, I just felt the need to, to remind us that time is elapsing. Here in Corinth, time is running out. And for our own personal lives, time is elapsing. And we need to redeem the time, make the most use of the time. Going on in 2 Corinthians 13, I want to point out several principles of church discipline. Because really, this is the context. 
He wants them to take advantage of the time so that they get right with God and so that he wouldn't have to discipline them. But there is also the potential, again, if you look back at chapter 12, especially verse 20, there is the potential for disappointment and 21. So, three things I want to point out here about the, these principles of church discipline. Number one, there needed to be a careful investigation. Look at the text with me again. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there, the Apostle Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19, and the words are almost exactly the same in the Greek as the Septuagint. So there Paul is saying, look, every fact, which brings in the question, look, church discipline, the discipline, the disciplinary action of a church towards sin has to be on the basis of fact. It cannot be on the basis of emotion or feeling or sentiment. Well, I just don't like that guy. The elders just kind of have it out for someone in the church. That, there is no room for that in the Word of God. There is no room for that in the church. We can never be particular. We can never be partial either. We'll see that. But everything has to be factual. In Deuteronomy chapter 19 and in chapter 17, the children of Israel were, were to deal judiciously over the nation. They were to investigate cases and matters. They were to have trials and bring things out into the light. And that is what Paul is saying here. That he would do everything on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now this is an interesting twist in the context. The question is, who are the witnesses? Who are the witnesses that Paul is talking about bringing here? Confirming everything with two or three witnesses. The testimony. Well, theories abound. Some people say, well, it's Paul and his associates. Those who've gone ahead of him in Corinth. Some say, no. It's Paul investigating and he's going to get testimony from people that are there. But the majority view is that Paul himself embodies these three testimonies, these three witnesses, two or three witnesses. And he's referring to his visits. On his third visit, that would become, in essence, the third witness to their sin. After all, their sin is out in the open. It is open. It is manifest. And so Paul is saying, look, he's ready to prosecute if he comes again and finds the church in sin again, and then he would come and deliver the necessary discipline. The second thing, again, is that there must be also consistent discipline. That is to say there cannot be any partiality. A pastor, the leadership of a church, when they move to discipline an individual, there cannot be even a hint of partiality. There cannot be any nepotism. You cannot defer to family or wealthy people in the church that may be trying to vie for your allegiance. There can be none of that. The elders are to move out with total and complete impartiality in the matter. That's why Paul says, I have previously said, if you're going on here in the text, in verse 2, he says that when... And when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance, in advance to him coming, that those who have sinned in the past, and to all of the rest, so he doesn't just warn the sinful parties, he's saying, I'm telling everybody else now, 
that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. See that? No one. As a matter of fact, what's interesting here is the Greek text is ambiguous. The, the literal Greek literally just says, I will not spare. There is no anyone. There is no, I will not spare them. I will not spare you, plural. There is none of that. It's just, I will not spare. And he leaves it open-ended. And I think that the, the, the translators of the NASB probably have it the best. I will not spare anyone because the ambiguity is to generalize the application of the discipline. This discipline can apply to anyone, to the person, or the individuals that have sinned, to the rest if they persist in sin because they were persisting and not just this way, that there were individuals who were in sin, guilty of a certain sin, sin of immorality, sensuality, impurity, as he talks about there in chapter 12, but also there were tolerating the sin. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that the church has a history of tolerating sin in its midst. And Paul says, in regard to that, I will not praise you. You see, it's the pastor's desire above everything to praise his church. You're a good church. You did well. I love this church. You know, we got great pastors, great deacons. There are great members here. We have great ministries going on. And so our natural propensity is to want to kind of, you know, pump it up a little bit. You know, kind of the way you do with your kids. You did good. That was great. You know, I know you kind of you hit your sister in the midst of it, but, you know, you were trying. So you're just constantly trying to affirm, affirm, affirm. But there comes a point in time where certain things just can't be affirmed. We can't praise you for this. You're just tolerating immorality, and we can't praise you for that. We can't commend you for that. As a matter of fact, under the authority of God and, and Christ himself, he constrains us that we have to deal with this issue. And so God has to put his thumb on an individual in the church. He has to discipline and get the leaven of sin out for the overall health, the overall purity of the church. The sad thing is, as you well know, the sad thing is, is that church discipline is a forgotten doctrine in much of the church today. There are many pastors who are really, truly, in essence, just hirelings. They're cowards because they will not operate in the authority that Christ has invested in them. I've had pastors tell me to my face, why would I ever excommunicate somebody if it's just gonna, if it's just gonna push them away from God? And as I said, you remember probably, don't be more compassionate than God. Don't try to be more loving than God is. Don't think that you have a better grab on, a greater grip on grace than God does. God knows what he's doing with his love. And sometimes tough love is exactly what people need. Exactly what people need. The last thing is, not only would there be a careful investigation of the facts, not only would there be an impartial and a consistent discipline, but there would also be a convincing authority because the church, you remember here in the text, is asking for proof. Look at verse 3. Proof that Paul really has Christ's authority. 
It says, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Wow, just an amazing, amazing text right there. So the church, ironically, this is such a twist here. This is, if this was a soap opera, this would be the part where the, the music comes on. Dun, 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 right? They're challenging him and saying, do you really have authority? And irony of ironies is that the authority they're looking for is about to be displayed in the most ironic way. Through their own chastisement. The power of Christ that they're looking for and the power of Christ that they have been accustomed to. Who can't look at 1 Corinthians and as messy as that church was in 1 Corinthians, as messy as the church is with the abuse of charismatic gifts, who can't but say, wow, God was doing wonders among the Corinthians. Oh, there were people healing. There were people, there was people prophesying, speaking in tongues. There were people receiving words of wisdom and knowledge. And there, there was all this charismatic phenomenon. Indeed, Paul says at the opening up of the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Look, I'm writing to you so you will not lack in any spiritual gift as you await the coming of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord. There was no shortage of proof of the power of Christ. But now that same power is going to be turned on them. And they're going to experience the power of God in a different way, in a way that they did not suspect. All of a sudden, the power they're seeking is about to be proven through their own spiritual demise, their own spiritual discipline. If, there's the big if of, of, of church discipline, if you don't repent, God wants repentance. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for us to repent. And when we repent, He is gracious, He forgives, He lavishes us, He has the, the, the fatted calf slaughtered, he, he, he throws a big feast for you, and you experience a flood of His embrace and His affirmation and His love if true and genuine repentance can be proven. But if the church digs in its heels, then it will experience the disciplining chastising love of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because there they have already seen or at least have a clue about the power that Paul is talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Beginning in verse 3, because there you know the scandalous sin that's going on in Corinth. A man has a stepmother, and there's immorality in the church, and the church is boasting and even parading this around like it's an acceptable thing. Then Paul says, For me, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, this is why we have to take the assembly of the saints so serious. It is having the authority of Jesus himself to bear on us, brothers and sisters. And I with you in spirit, with the power, there it is, of the Lord Jesus. 
power there symbolizing something like authority. Authority. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Amazing. What is church discipline all about? When you put somebody out of the church, what are you doing? You're doing several things. Number one, you are speaking authoritatively on behalf of Christ. Matthew chapter 18, after Jesus gives him instructions, this is how you... This is how you institute church discipline. If a brother sins against you, go to that brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take another person with you. If he doesn't listen to either of you, then take them to the church. If he doesn't want to listen to the church, then treat him like a non-believer. And then right after he says that, he says, whatever you bind on earth would have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth would have already been loosed in heaven. You see, church discipline is just thinking the thoughts of God after him. God has already disciplined that person. The church is simply following suit. And he gives the church. And only the church. This authority is not given to any missions organizations. This authority is not given to any parachurch organizations. This is not given to homeless ministries. This is not given to to feeding ministries or humanitarian ministries or adoption ministries. This ministry of church discipline, this authority is only given to the local church. Amazing, isn't it? Christ's judicial system on earth. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what so many people in the evangelical world right now are just playing with. Church is like a plaything. Church is just a platform to do what you want to do. And little do you know that on the day of judgment, all of those works will burn up just like that. Because the same Paul that is teaching us about discipline is the same Paul that taught the Corinthians earlier on in this book. That if you don't build the church on a solid foundation, if you don't use good building materials, then on the day of judgment, when you stand before Christ in his judgment seat, your works will vanish. They will have no eternal benefits. They will have no eternal ramifications other than you will suffer loss Dude, what kind of loss is that? Well, let me try to explain it to you. As a pastor, if I labor year after year after year in the church, and I get to the judgment seat of Christ, and I see much of my work vanish before my eyes and burn up, and Christ would look at that work and deem it unworthy, trust me, that's loss. That's a devastating blow. What John Piper calls eternal remorse but it will be sweet in the end (laughs) because it will just give you more of your need for Christ. It will show you more of the goodness of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ. But nevertheless, we have to feel the weight of those words. You will suffer loss. And so Paul is saying that he would come with this similar authority here in 2 Corinthians. Since you are seeking for proof of Christ who speaks in me. They were questioning, is Paul really an ambassador? 
I know he said that in the letter. I'm an ambassador of Christ, and we make nice sermons out of that. But they were questioning, is that true? Does he really have Christ's authority? Or how about this? He opens up both letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, saying he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Did God really will for him to be an apostle? That's what they're questioning. And that's what they're going to find out. And they will see beyond any shadow of a doubt that when he comes, if discipline has to happen, that he is truly an apostle. He is an ambassador. He is who he said he was. The Corinthians had been accustomed to seeing the work of Christ, and now they would see the work of Christ in a new way, through the discipline that Paul will exact upon the church. Isn't it funny? But sometimes it's true that God's people... We have to sometimes have a taste of our own medicine before we will really believe and fear and love God as we tell other people to do. They want to talk about the power of God. Maybe what they need to experience is the disciplinary power of God. The next time they go around demanding proof of the power of God in Paul. And that principle, I think, carries over into all kinds of areas in our lives. Sometimes God has to humble us before we can preach humility. Parents, sometimes God has to discipline you before you learn how to discipline your children. You're so upset that your kids are out of control or that they're unruly or that they're unprincipled, but you yourself are unprincipled, unruly. And God has to teach you those hard lessons before you can pass them on to your children. It is very often the case that God makes us have to have a taste of our own medicine before we dish it out to others. So, not only confronting sin with caution, but now, verse 4, confronting sin specifically now with Christ. Verse 4, let's read that together. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For if we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Now, I've got two problems here. <laughs> this is a problem, okay? I have two different roads that I need to pursue in this text. Number one, it's the exegetical argument. The exegetical argument doesn't come until the very last Phrase, that prepositional phrase, toward you. If you have an ESV Bible, you don't have it. I think they did a terrible job on this phrase. They would say that, you know, in dealing with you, that is not the rendition of this text. Directed toward you, toward you, for you, that's the meaning. And so the question is, why does he tap that on at the end? Doesn't it kind of read kind of funny to you? We live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. And so there, I think the exegetical argument is this. There are principles of union with Christ. Those principles have to do with the weakness and the power of Christ and our union to him. But that power is directed toward you in the context of discipline. In other words, it's the, the power that they're going to experience 
by Paul's ministry and him coming to them. That's the exegetical argument. That's the way the text works. But now there are theological details here that we have to really sit and savor and treasure. So I hope you're not bored because we're not done yet. There's a lot more here. All of this language of union with Christ, I want you to leave, I want you to leave here today super encouraged that you are with Him, that you are in Him. This principle that, listen, He was crucified because of weakness. And there, obviously we're thinking about the condescension of Christ, the weakness of Christ, glorious Christ, the divine Logos, the glorious pre-existent Christ, the Christ who created the world, the Christ who sustains all things by the word of His power, the Christ who is in the habitation of glory with the Father through the Spirit for all eternity, gloriously clothed in majesty and glory, unmitigated in His fellowship with the Father through the Spirit. The Father and the Son, John 1.1, were in a relationship face-to-face. That's what it says. Face-to-face. It's, in other words, it's trying to communicate in intimate, the most intimate possible language to show you that Jesus Christ and His Father are in a perfect union of love. Perfect fellowship. Perfect holy communion. How? Through the Spirit. The Spirit is the, 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 the spiritual dynamic that binds the fellowship together. It's just remarkable. I think something like that is true. That glorious Christ was crucified because of weakness. That weakness, therefore, is His incarnation. Coming down, condescending, leaving His habitation of glory. Coming down, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, in the form of a man, in the form of sinful flesh, in the form of a bondservant, in the form of a slave. He humbled himself to the point where he would obey the Father perfectly and live a perfect life and die a perfect death on your behalf, my behalf. That's the weakness. And then there's another dynamic here. But he lives because of the power of God. So, it is the power of God. It was that the same power that caused the crucified Christ to live again is at work in us. That's beautiful. Think of the Apostle Paul. Does he know anything about weakness? Yes, he does. If you've been following along just in this letter right here, 2 Corinthians, he has, he has given us a portrait of a pathetically weak man through whom the power of God shined with great splendor and effulgence. The glory power of God streaming out of the weak life of the Apostle Paul. Beautiful. Beautiful. He's weak. In chapter 7, he's depressed. In chapter 2, he's filled with sorrow. In chapter 1, he's overcome by an incredible, unspeakable trial that he doesn't even go into. 
In chapter 4, he says he was afflicted in every way. No rest inside. You ever, you ever kind of sort of, uh, you ever steal away unto yourself your own thoughts? Uh, you, you find a little hideaway there among yourself and your thoughts. Paul is saying, not even there. I can't even live inside at peace. He was filled, as he says, he had, he had fears within, gripped with fear. And he knew in chapter 4 that his outer man was perishing, perishing. He was well acquainted with the fact that his outer man, can't, it can't stay beautiful for long. It's already decaying. He sees the evidence of it all around him. He probably had an eye problem, physical problem. Church history says that he was nothing to look at. He was probably actually repulsive to look at. He, was not, he couldn't appear on the cover of Calvin Klein or GQ magazine. He was no one you really wanted to be around. You didn't want to take a picture with Paul. He wasn't anything to look at. He was not anything impressive. According to chapter 5, verse 4, he knew what it, mean, what it meant to groan in his body. He knew what it meant to serve God in affliction. In affliction. He knew what it meant. How about these pressures? To be wrongly accused by others. Can you think of something more taxing than that? Oh, we can deal with a lot, right? We can deal with physical problems. But when people start doing these types of things to you, accusing you falsely, assuming on your motives, slandering your reputation, he had enemies, he knew what it was to forgo his privileges, as we've been studying. In chapter 11, he gives us a whole litany of afflictions, and he was overwhelmed. Some of it was, some of it was voluntary fasting, concern for the church. He said, look, who is weak in the church? And it doesn't weaken me when I hear about it. Who's in sin without my intense concern for that person. Paul was truly a minister of weakness. And so I turn the whole matter around on you. Do you feel weak? I know that you do. I know that you do because you are sick, you're suffering, I know you're discouraged. You're attacked, you're bombarded with warfare. You are often oppressed. Sometimes you're persecuted. You are tried and tempted in this world by the flesh, the world, and the devil. And yet, when we are tempted to focus on our weakness, here is the climax of the sermon. When you are tempted to say, oh, look at me in my poor state. You know what the, the, the answer coming back, the, the advice of Scripture coming back to us is? Instead, focus on your indissoluble union with Christ because you are glued to Him. You are joined to Him. And just like He was weak, yes, you're weak because you have an identity with Christ in His weakness, His death, His suffering, 1 Peter says, chapter 3, he gave you an example of how to suffer. But you are also identified with Christ in his glory, his power, his exaltation. 
So the next time you're tempted to think, look how weak I am. Look at my condition. Look at my trials. Look at my physical infirmities. Look at all of the complicated, complex, dysfunctional things that are going on in my life. You can either choose to stay right there and to gross out at who you are, or, or, you can choose like Paul to fix your gaze on the doctrine of union with Christ. And say, I don't care what's going on in my physical body. There are promises in Scripture that says, I cannot be taken from His hand. I am in Him. He is in me. I cannot be severed from His body. I'm part of His body. If He loses a body part, then on the day of judgment, He loses His glory. He has covenanted. He has made a commitment to me that where, if He lives, I will live. Where he goes, I will go. And that although he is gone right now, he is preparing a place for me. You see how much better it is to focus on that? Than to focus on how bad our trials are? This whole sermon of union with Christ, this whole idea is all about trading with Christ. Your negatives for his positives. William True Sleeper, that's a name. William True Sleeper. He was a real sleeper. He was also pastor of Summer Street Congregational Church in Rochester, Massachusetts, where he ministered for over 30 years. He was also a prolific hymn writer. We sing one of his hymns in our church, and it is the hymn that I want to leave you with as I close. The hymn is Jesus I Come, and it captures everything that Paul is talking about here. Listen to the first two verses of the hymn, because it's packed with theology. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health. Out of my wanting, into thy wealth. Out of my sin and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into thy glorious gain of thy cross, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of earth's sorrows and into thy balm, out of life's storms and into thy calm. Out of distress and into jubilant psalm, Jesus, I come to thee. Let's pray. Father, Lord, let us choose for 2014 to have that hymn sort of as a resolution of our heart. Not to play around or to deny or to fake the fact that in this life there is sorrow, pain, there is night, there is sickness, there is wanting, there is sin. But at the same time, Lord, help us also not to stay there, but Lord, help us to fly to your Son. Help us to flee to his cross work where we have glorious gain.
And Lord, help us, instead of our distressing and our fretting over our providential circumstances, instead, help us to sing jubilant songs over our lives. Oh God, you are enough for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.